freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Here we are under the tree where we gather regularly for our seminar on freedom. That was the artist and freedom fighter Tom Morello, as always. Tom's a generous, inspiring person who shows up everywhere when people come together in the cause of peace and justice. We open each episode with a poem, our common practice, and our ritual announcement that seminar is underway. It's a time of reflection a moment of Zen. Today we have a poem from a legendary artist, Pablo Neruda, Nobel Prize winner, and the poem is The Poet's Obligation. To whoever is not listening to the sea this Friday morning, to whoever is cooped up in house or office, factory or street or mine or dry prison cell, to that person I come, and without speaking or looking, I arrive and open the door of the prison, and a vibration starts up, vague and insistent. A long rumble of thunder adds itself to the weight of the planet, and the foam, the groaning rivers of the ocean rise, the star vibrates quickly in its corona, and the sea beats, dies, and goes on beating. So drawn on by my destiny, I ceaselessly must listen to and keep the seas lamenting in my consciousness. I must feel the crash of the hard water and gather it up in a perpetual cup so that wherever those in prison may be, wherever they suffer the sentence of the autumn, I may be present with an errant wave. I move in and out of windows and hearing me, eyes may lift themselves asking, how can I reach the sea? And I will pass to them saying nothing. The starry echoes of the wave a breaking up of foam and quicksand, a resulting of salt withdrawing itself, the gray cry of seabirds on the coast. So through me, freedom and the sea will call in answer to the shrouded heart. That's Pablo Neruda, The Poet's Obligation. I often read this as the teacher's obligation or the organizer's obligation or the activist's obligation. Think about it. Through me, Freedom in the sea will call in answer to the shrouded heart. Love that line. Our second regular feature is a free write, a time to release our imaginations and react extemporaneously, enabling surprising new winds to gather strength, and then to release our imaginations and allow those unexpected and astonishing winds to go wild. Here you can pause the podcast for just a few moments. Again, I'll remind you that you can pause the podcast for an hour or a day, as long as you like. It's not going anywhere, which you surely already know. So pause here if you like, and write wildly, no need for edits or revisions, in response to this prompt. Write a note to someone in prison. That person might be factual and material or imagined, and the prison might be real or metaphoric. The prison of ignorance, for example, the prison of dogma or orthodoxy. And picture yourself moving in and out of windows, offering a vision of the sea and of freedom. Start writing. I'll be right here when you return. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's time for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, pronounced AH, where we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply about the political moment we're living through, about where we are on the clock of the universe, about what is to be done or what the known demands of us now. We look at the circumstances of our lives, release our most radical imaginations, and ask ourselves not just what's going on, but how things might be otherwise 
and what we might do about it. Today, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome one of my oldest and dearest friends, Kathy Boudin. Kathy is the director of the Center for Justice at Columbia University. Uh, we first knew each other in 1965 or so, um, but we'll get into all that. But welcome, Kathy. Good to see you. Thank you. I'm, I'm actually very excited to be doing this with you. Uh, thank you. This podcast is called Under the Tree, as you know, and that image is from the freedom schools in Mississippi and throughout the South during the last uprising of the, of the, of the great black freedom movement. And um, the image is meant to convey the idea that we can have education everywhere and anywhere. And that the most important thing we can do is kind of talk about the question of freedom. What does it mean to be free? How can we get free? Um, how can the world be a freer, more peaceful, more just place? So you're kind of the perfect guest, and I'm just thrilled that you've joined us under the tree. Thank you. Um, so, so, Kathy, first of all, I guess I'd like to ask you how you're doing today. What are you up to today? Literally today. What are, hey. What's going on? Well, today I've mainly been on Zoom calls. Oh, my God. And now you're on another one. Now I'm on another, yeah. So I think that in some ways it's very difficult to detach from everything that's happening, even if I'm not in the center of things. So uh, I can't remember what each of my calls was about, but they do relate to the issues of criminal justice uh, or criminal legal system or criminal illegal system and working on those issues. So that's what you've been working on for really decades now is the question of criminal justice and, and questions of freedom in the biggest capital F sense and freedom in the, in the smaller sense, the more personal sense. But so, so you're not completely zoomed out though. Is that correct? You're a little zoomed out. Probably one of the most exciting parts of my day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. Let me ask you one other thing and then we'll jump into the question of justice. But, um, are there, I mean, I know we're living through an unprecedented crisis, a series of crises, certainly the pandemic and all the underlying conditions that are now being exposed and illuminated in, you know, unimaginable ways. Um, but how are you finding joy in this period? Are you finding moments where you can uh, feel the joy and feel the joy of life? Well, I think the joy comes from connection to family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the joy comes from connection to the people that I work with. Okay. Both in Columbia and people that are in other uh, groups that I work with, whether it's women's movement aspects or whether it's uh, rap, release aging people from prison. And joy comes from being out in nature. Okay. I like the fact that this is about under the tree because I think trees are really special. Yeah. I've, I've done a number of camping trips, literally going out camping in a tent. Uh, under Tell me where? Tell me where and with whom? Uh, I have a really good friend who uh, uh, we met in a prenatal class, and, huh. she, and she likes camping out. And oh, so great. we taken in her car, and we packed our tent and gone to some ponds in the, in the Adirondacks. Oh, nice. And we also went camping out on the lawn of a childhood friend and her husband in Vermont on Lake Champlain. Nice. So I'm looking to continue to camp out in the tent under trees by water. Nice. nice. Well, let's go back a bit. Um, you and I met in Cleveland in probably 1966, I'm guessing. Is that what you remember? Either 66? Yeah, I would say 66, yes. And what I remember about you has um, stood the test of time. You were, to me, a model of what a community organizer should be. You not only built relationships, but you somehow maintained the the tension that every community organizer lives with, which is holding on to your own principles and listening intently to the people that you're working with and kind of believing in them, having a deep faith in them. Tell us a little bit about Cleveland. What was that about? What were we doing there? I had just finished my junior year of college and I was going away out of the country for my senior year. And it was a Mississippi summer, 1964. People were going down to Mississippi, a lot of white youth students were going down to Mississippi to help register for the vote. And I didn't understand at that time how just trying to get black people, African-American people, the right to vote was a very revolutionary thing. And it was going to stir stir the entire country. And I heard about an organization called Students for a Democratic Society. 
that was bringing people into poor communities in the North, and it was to build an interracial movement of the poor. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wavered about going south or going into the northern communities. And I find that I did it, but I look back and think about how I did not understand that what to me seemed to be a very natural liberal thing to vote was going to be a real threatening project to the uh, establishment, to the South. And as we can see today, denying people the right to vote who might vote to change the system a little bit is one of the major strategies of, of the Republican Party and has been. And it reinforces the idea that for democracy to happen with people of color, it shakes up the system as a whole. I think you're right that it's the Republican Party. Their only strategy is voter suppression. But I actually think the entire establishment wants limits on voting. I don't think they want the masses of people to vote. I don't think they ever have. Well, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think that I think that if you think about the Electoral College or if you think about um, not just Jim Crow, but the discouraging in northern cities of poor people <clears throat> to vote, for example, Homeless people have a terrible time voting in Chicago. Uh, what's their address? Where do they live? You know, that kind of thing. So I think, I think the establishment never, ever, ever believed in universal suffrage, and they still don't. But I think you're right to say the Republican Party at this moment has one strategy and one strategy only, and that is to suppress the vote. And it takes many, many, has many tentacles, you know. But. And I think it is true that the it's it's not just about race it's about something more it's about class it's about not wanting the establishment to be the structure of our country to be changed to have greater equality but there's also a specific aspect in terms of black people yeah i think I, I think you're right i mean i think that i mean talk about that for a minute race and class because they have a particular toxic nature in the united states talk a bit about what you've learned about race and class it's really interesting because going back to when I went to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and stayed really for most of four years, which is when we met, the initial period was knocking on people's doors in a white community, very poor, people who had come up from Appalachia because the mines had closed, and asking them what the problems were that they would like to have dealt with. And actually, it was part of voter registration as well. And the problems were everything from rats in housing projects to a street light where kids had been killed because there was no light to unemployment. And I know that the first period that I was there was really spent working in the white Appalachian community. And there were some amazing people. I learned, I learned about poverty. You know, mm-hmm. it was the time when Michael Harrington wrote his book, The Other America, and I felt like I came from a, a life that poverty was not the issue. Mm-hmm. And, but when I came back after being away for a year, I mainly ended up working with the welfare rights movement in Cleveland. Right. And right. primarily worked with women of color, not entirely but mainly with black women. And I think for me, what happened was, number one, I really learned from that experience about white privilege. Because no matter what my, my image was, it was somebody who was smart, who had gone to college, who could make things happen. And as I came to learn about the lives of the women I was working with, the whole concept of knowledge and being smart and what gave people opportunities in life was challenged. Yeah. And we ended up, they ended up saying, don't pretend you don't know something that we can learn from. But, and I know that I felt like, oh my God, I'm learning every day about a system about racism and how survival happens. And that the New York Times uh, narrative about women on welfare was that they're kind of lazy. And I watched the women work day in and day out to get, and still have trouble getting a welfare check because their rights were denied. But then what happened is the war in Vietnam happened. Mm. And I ended up partly based on the development of black power and Stokely Carmichael came to Cleveland and said, you as white people should really be working with white people about racism. Mm. And so we actually left the work in the black community after you know, figuring out a way to end it. And I went back to working with the white people and so many of them wanted to fight in the war in Vietnam. Mm. This odd sense of loyalty to a system that was completely screwing them. Mm. Yet they had a loyalty. So I experienced something about race and class in that period that was very deep. Wow, that is amazing. Let's go back to Cleveland for one minute. You said you learned a lot from some of these extraordinary women, far from lazy, far from ignorant. They were ambitious, hardworking, 
ethical, intellectual. Um, maybe say a word about a word more about that, and maybe even a couple of the women. I I knew Lillian. I knew Carol King. I knew um, Dolores Hill. Uh, maybe say a word about one or two of those folks who you really took on as as your mentors. Yeah. I mean, some of, one of the women, Carol King, had four or five children, and she was struggling to just both have a job to earn some extra money and also be able to uh, get her welfare check. Mm-hmm. But she became somebody who was able to become the leader in many ways of the women mm-hmm. that were on welfare. She was able, she learned their rights fast because she knew them, but she learned what they were supposed to get. She was able to begin to go down and be an advocate for the other women. Uh, another woman named Lillian was Craig, who was a white woman who was active in the welfare rights movement, ended up getting hired by the war on poverty by Johnson. So mm-hmm. we would see people kind of being the leaders that were the grassroots leaders, but then there were these jobs, you know, with the government about poverty. And some of these folks ended up taking those jobs and became leaders, but in another way. Right. And then there was the turn towards anti-Vietnam War work. But, but also in that period, I believe you wrote a book called The Bust Book. So it's funny, when you think back to that, I mean, people who know you uh, don't know how far back it stretches with you and the law. But yeah. you wrote a book called The Bust Book. Tell us about The Bust Book. Yeah. I mean, I, w- I was arrested at the Democratic National Convention, and I went to law school for a few months after that. I was on probation. Uh, for the year, and I ultimately ended up leaving law school and moving back to New York City. Why? Uh, you know, I had always, when I graduated from college, I thought I would go to law school, and uh, I applied, and then I was in Cleveland, and I learned about, started learning welfare rights law. And then when I moved into the war in Vietnam, I started learning selective service law. Hmm. And so it always seemed like going to law school was no longer being involved in the, on the ground. Got it. And, so I, in New York, I connected with a number of people, all of whom in some way related to the law, two of whom had been kicked out of Columbia Law School because of their participation in the strikes at Columbia. Who? Uh, Eleanor Stein and Gussie Reichbach. Nice. And, and <clears throat> was Brian Glick, who was already a lawyer, actually working in the area of welfare law, but was also not satisfied. And so the four of us became a little legal collective Nice. tried to figure out how to use our interests in the law. And we, left, we worked a lot with people on campuses who were now facing grand juries uh, investigating. So we learned grand jury law and then began going to campuses to sort of educate people about the relationship between the grand juries that was happening at the end of the 1960s and the grand juries in, in the McCarthy period. And mm. ultimately, so many people were being arrested that the four of us decided to write something called the bus book, which would explain using cartoons and using... Uh, you know, clear language, kind of what to do if you're arrested. Mm. So it's bust, B-U-S-T. I think it sometimes sounds like bus, B-U-S, but it's B-U-S-T, the bust book. Um, And it got wide circulation, didn't it, the bust book? Apparently. Yeah. Um, All right, so then then you write the bust book, you get involved in the anti-war work and very, very deeply involved in Students for a Democratic Society, right? Well, I moved to New York in 19, in this, uh, I moved to New York in 1968, in the fall of 1968, after I was put on probation and had to be really careful. And I was not, in my mind, part of Students for a Democratic Society. I had become part of something called the ERAP project, or the Economic Research and Action Project. That's where I met you, exactly. But I wasn't part of uh, SDS in my mind. Right. I was part of the Community Organizing Project. And... Uh, during the fall and winter, I worked with, with my little legal collective doing work. And it was really uh, when the SDS convention happened in 1969 that some people persuaded me to go. And I went, not assuming that I was going to become part of SDS or Weatherman. I went to explore it and think about it. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in Chicago in, the, in June of 1969. And you ended up in the faction of SDS that was called the Weathermen faction. Speak about that just for a minute. What moved me about that was what I took from my experience in Cleveland and what I also took from looking at the world, which was that the leadership, the, the leading force in the world 
was really national liberation struggles around the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had been to Cuba in 1960, right after the revolution. Uh, and so Latin America was very much on my mind as well as Cuba, the war in Vietnam with the Vietnamese playing a major role, the struggles in Africa and the struggles in our own country, the black freedom movement, the different moments in it, civil rights, black liberation, the Puerto Rican nationalist movement, the Native indigenous Native American movement, the Chicano movement. And I felt that the drive for change was happening really by at that time, what was framed as national liberation struggles. Mm-hmm. And I felt that the historic role of the white working class was kind of invisible to me. Mm-hmm. And that being somebody who wanted to be part of the change that seemed possible and was happening, it was wanting to recognize that it was really people of color mm-hmm. in these different struggles around the world as well as in our own country that were really leading the struggle. Mm-hmm. I was drawn to Weatherman because that was a central central idea in the politics of Weatherman. And I think my experience with being living on the, uh, what we call the, uh, the near west side of Cleveland and, and watching people lean towards being drafted and going into the war and feeling that they were not, you know, that they were better than black people. It was, it was I could feel the loyalty to the system of the class. Mm. In some ways were supposed to be the revolutionary class mm. and yet it wasn't happening. Mm. And so you were drawn to the weather position within SDS. And of course, the, the war was dragging on and 6,000 people a week were being murdered by our government. And a few months after you attended that convention, you were underground. How did that happen? Mm. I mean, I, I guess the best way to say it is that I, as the war got larger and larger, and there was Nixon, Nixon had been elected and, and was expanding the war, not just uh, increasing him the tons of, of bombings and napalming that they were doing in Vietnam, but planning to invade Cambodia and Laos. And I felt a desperation to stop the war. Mm. And I was drawn to be involved in more militancy. Mm-hmm. And then um, the townhouse happens in New York City. Right. Three of your comrades, my comrades, are killed, and you go underground for the next several years. That's 12 years to be exact. Yeah. And then, and then that period ends um, with you going to prison for, what, 21 years, 22 years? 22 years. Yeah. yeah. Talk about how, that, how you ended up in prison. I mean, many people know this story, but just very quickly... Um, I think, I think one of the things that people know about you is that you did time in prison. And I want to talk about mostly about you coming out of prison, but talk for a minute about the 22 years you did in prison. And again, thinking about freedom. I mean, what does it mean? You know, I think freedom is a rich word. And I have to say that towards the end of my time underground, I didn't feel free. Mm-hmm. I couldn't figure out really, after being underground for 12 years, I couldn't figure out exactly. I, I knew so much had changed in our society, but I actually struggled with um, what did I know? What did I think? What had changed? And I also had a son, David Gilbert and I had a child together. And I was definitely internally struggling about whether to stay underground or go above ground. And mm-hmm. I you know, ultimately felt that the right thing to do for me was to go above ground. Um, but I ended up being involved in an act to support the Black Liberation Army. And two uh, people were killed, many people were injured, and many people were traumatized by it. And I ended up getting arrested with a number of other people, including David. And as a result of that, I ended up getting sentenced for 20 to life in prison. And for the first two years, I lived alone with my co-defendant, Judy Clark, completely the two of us together alone. And then the last six months, I ended up being in general population. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got to Bedford Hills, where I would to spend the next 20 years, I was just beginning to get used to my own name so I had different names while I was underground. I was beginning to get used to who I was, no longer a fugitive. And uh, 
and having undergone two and a half very difficult years of waiting for the trial or <clears throat> all that. And I remember when I first got to Bedford, we were in a, uh, a living unit before people were medically cleared. And I remember the first night that I was there, people ended up saying, okay, here's what you got to do, you know, and they gave, handed me a, a, a buffer, you know, and they, they all watched me try to buffer the floor. And these buffers, you know, now they have like machines, but these buffers, you would have to hold on to it and it would swing you to one side and, <laughs> and swing you to the other side. And, uh, you know, I realized from the moment I got there, I had a lot to learn. <laughs> and one of them was how to buff the floors and wax the floors with the buffer. Right. Uh, but there was a sense of a community because we were all living together and we were all being treated as, as prisoners. Uh, that's the word that was used, or convicts or felons. And I, it brought back to me that sense of feeling of kind of when I had been in Cleveland in a certain way. I, I was kind of part of a community of people. And, you know, the first day I was there, I heard, okay, there's softball practice. And I was like, softball practice? I haven't played softball since I had been in camp. You know, but I loved it. I like sports. And so I went up to the field and uh, began tossing the ball. And they could see I could play a little bit. And I became a, t a pitcher for 20 years for a softball team that played people from the outside, from drug programs, women from bars, gay bars, uh, you know. And then at the same time, every day we were harassed. Mm. You know, you'd have your cell, a guard would come, a CO, we called them the COs, and they would say, all right, step out of your cell, you step out of your cell. And they would throw the sheets off the bed, They'd take the books that you had and throw them on the sheets. They'd take your toothpaste and toothbrush and throw them on the books. They'd take cans of, you know, tomato sauce and take it and throw it on there. And your cell would be this complete wreck. wreck. You'd stand out of your cell. There's nothing you could say. And then they would say, all right, it's all clean. You're fine. Go, go back in. Clean your cell. Wow. Nothing you could say to them. <clears throat> and so you would stand with other people watching them destroy your cell until they went on to the next cell to destroy and you learned how to figure out a way to laugh your way through it because you couldn't let the anger come out because you'd only get in trouble. And it's, that kind of treatment was all the time. Yeah, it's amazing. It's not just the taking away of your freedom that's the punishment. It's the humiliation on top of the humiliation. Constant humiliation. But one of the things you referenced when you started this, this aspect of the conversation is you referenced Cleveland. And I think anyone who knew you in that period would say that Kathy Boudin's extraordinary skills as an organizer came to bear in the most unlikely place. And you were an organizer at Bedford Hills. I mean, you organized a life for yourself, but you also organized other things. Um, you know, I, I remember children's it. center, things like that. In talking with you then, every time you would use the word organizer, whatever we would, I would say, don't use that word, Bill. That's going to get me in trouble. You know, <laughs> you couldn't use the word organized. It's a very, very threatening thing. It is a threatening thing. And, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm glad you're such a great organizer. <laughs> so I think that, you know, what I took from Cleveland was a knowledge of the fact that I had certain strengths and there was so much knowledge I didn't have. Right. And if you were going to make things happen at Bedford Hills, it was about, that was a basic principle of understanding that it was by working together and recognizing the tremendous strengths that the women had there, whether they had a GED, whether they were adult basic education, whether they were starting college or whether they were, had used drugs, drug addicted, whether they had, it was like mental health issues. The issues that we worked around were ones that all of us shared. Right. So we had to build a way of dealing with them that brought in the strengths of all of us build the programs, not organize, but build the programs right. that meet the needs of those right. of us that were there. And well, also the models for other parts of the country's prisons as well. That's right. And I'm not going to get you in trouble by saying organizer, but damn, if that isn't the essence of what a good organizer does, listens before speaking, builds community, builds a sense of, of agency in people who have their agency stripped away from them systematically. That's what a good organizer does. And I've seen you do it in about 200 different venues, but starting in Cleveland and certainly your 20 years, 22 years 
at Bedford Hills were for me a model of not only courage but um, a willingness to make a way out of no way. And uh, I think you did. And 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 I think you know maybe you'd like to say something about that. But I but I'd like to also get you to say a word about coming out of prison because you came out with more strengths um, than most people are able to come out with. And, and you were able to pretty quickly construct a life. I think that, first of all, I had a, such a strong family connection, obviously with you and Bernadine and Zayd and Malik and my brother and friends that I've known since Cleveland <laughs> who had been family for me when my parents died. And I think having that family and strong friend network of support both helped me through prison and really helped me when I came home. Mm-hmm. And when I came home, it wasn't easy because uh, there was a lot of animosity towards me, you know, by the police. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a very difficult time. And um, the hospital where I'd been hired to work, the president of the hospital decided not to let me on the premises. Mm-hmm. But the director of the health clinic that had hired me absolutely stood on support for me and would not, and said to the president of the hospital, we're, we're paying her and we're paying her out of funds that don't come from necessarily from the hospital. We have other grants and uh, we're going to continue to pay her. Mm-hmm. And ultimately he allowed me in after four or five months, but it was, it was difficult. I think that this, when I came home, there were two things I really wanted to do. And one was I had done a lot of work with, as a mother in prison, in parenting programs, and my, one of my last projects was working with the teens who were visiting their mothers in prison. And I knew that helping them figure out a way to stay in touch with their mothers while the mothers was in prison was very important. But there was, what about afterwards? Are they going to finish high school? Are they going to go to college? Who's going to help them with college? I came home with a desire to build a program that would work with adolescents of incarcerated parents, mm-hmm. women and men, to be able to get the extra support they needed to go to college. The other thing I wanted to do had to do with people in prison for violent crimes. I was in prison for a violent crime. A lot of the people I knew who had been there for a long time, like myself, were in prison for a violent crime. And yet they became what was called long-termers because they had long sentences and they became the mentors and the leaders of the programs in the prison, the teachers. And really what they did was created lives that, that that had some meaning to them. And Yet when they went to the parole board, they were always turned down. Mm. And I felt like the parole board's assumption that people would come to prison with a conviction of a homicide or or, a murder or another kind of violent crime, that they were bad people Mm. and that they were being judged by the act and not being judged by the transformation that happened. And that prison hopefully gives you the chance to transform your life. And I came home determined to try to have an impact on parole policy. At the same time, I knew from myself and watching other people go to the parole board that mostly people don't have a chance to explore why they participated in a murder, mm-hmm. in a robbery. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a chance to explore why because you don't talk about what you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you didn't have a chance to really deal with the suffering that you caused. And you didn't even say what you really did because your lawyer helps you develop a narrative that's going to be the best thing for your sentence or your plea. And so you avoid having to say you shot the person, you say the gun went off mm. or the other person attacked me. Mm. And so you never face what you actually did to take the life of somebody. Mm-hmm. And so you go to the parole board and they say, tell us what happened. And you want to talk to them about all you've done in prison and you can't do it because mm. you can't talk about what you did because if you've never said I shot the person in the head, Mm-hmm. you are not going to say it for the first time at the parole board mm-hmm. because you feel like you want to present your best self and that's mm-hmm. not your best self. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to create a program that would give people the chance to look at their lives, to talk about what they really did, to talk about the harm that was done, to think about why they did it and to apologize and imagine what it world would look like if they had had programs that might've made things different. And so that work with long-termers, challenging the parole policy and the punishment paradigm, and at the same time creating an opportunity that could become a kind of restorative justice process. Nice. 
those are the two things I wanted to do. And uh, I think a couple of things. One is I came home and got my PhD, my EDD at, at Teachers College. And it was about the adolescents and their, and their mothers. And it was a great, great experience for me. And I worked in the hospital. In a way, the biggest thing that's happened since I came home is there's a large community of women and men who come home from prison who are doing amazing work. And we reinforced each other mm-hmm. and have continued to. And I've been home for 15 years. And I think that relationship with people that have come home that are trying to use what they've learned to either help others in prison, help others at home, or to change policies is a strong community for me of, of support. And uh, I'm very proud to be part of it. And this is the work of the Justice Center that you founded at Columbia University. Yeah, I mean, I think I went there with a colleague who I had worked with in prison. We had worked together to, uh, with other women to bring higher education back into the prison system after it was uh, discontinued during the Clinton administration in 1994 with the Omnibus Crime Bill. He eliminated the Pell Grant support for people in prison. And it was devastating to watch college close in prison. And so, again, a group of us got together and working with the superintendent figured out a way to bring higher education back by out, without taking any public funding. Mm-hmm. And so Cheryl Wilkins was the person that I had worked with, in the, one of the people I'd worked with in prison. And she came home a little bit after me and got her master's degree and was working on higher education for people coming home from prison. And I had gotten my degree and had been working on building a program at the hospital for people coming home from prison. And she and I together went to Columbia with a vision of how do you engage an entire university in uh, ending mass incarceration. And I think I was very much motivated by having been seen in the 60s, the ways in which campuses were a source of social action. And I felt like this issue of mass incarceration can become that. And so we've been there now for about 12 years. And the first five years was very much putting ourselves out there as people who had been in prison. People weren't talking about it then. And slowly bringing in the community with the concept that it's the knowledge of people directly impacted and university studying and students and faculty working together that can create change. And I think that's kind of been our vision of what to do with all these years. That also goes back to our ideology in Cleveland because we always said the people with the problems are the people with the solutions. Nothing about us without us. And that was very, very central. Um, You started a conference, an annual conference called Beyond the Bars, and it has transcended, I think, all expectations. And how many of those conferences have you had, and who've been some of the featured uh, folks who've um, either keynoted or or been deeply involved in those conferences? I mean, that conference we've done now 10 years. We've done it for 10 years. Uh, So we started like in 2010. And at that time, again, the, the term mass incarceration was not really known. And we had this, the conference idea initially was suggested by a student at the school social work whose father had been in, was in prison for 30 years. She was a tremendous organizer. Uh, her name is Wakumi this time. And uh, she's now organizing a conf- uh, an organization called Sister Soul. But it was her idea originally to do this out of the school social work. And so Cheryl and I worked to bring people in to teach who were doing the work in the community, mm. teach the social workers. Here's the community. You're coming in to help. Nice. And we want you to know that actually there's people from that community or people that are active in that community that can teach you about this. Mm. And then you're going to learn more. And so that was the first one we did, but it was so successful. I mean, they, we, you know, within a week, 150 people signed up and nobody thought it was going to be that big and for the school of social work. So the next year we said, let's do it for the whole campus. Right. And it allowed us to bring in our two things. One was the multi, uh, multi-issue, multi-discipline idea that we had, which is that every discipline from economics to psychology to nursing to uh, obviously law and education and psychology, all of those can be involved in trying to end mass incarceration through their lens. And so we worked in every school bringing people, both professors and students, to help design the conference so that from Mm -hmm. the beginning they were involved. And then we invited lots of people from the community that Cheryl and I worked with to be able to uh, come and teach and be part of it. And we also involved some of the students from Columbia from some of the professors to do it. Mm -hmm. And you also had 
Michelle Alexander, Miriam Kaba, Erica Miners, Beth Ritchie. Um, I mean, Angela Davis came to the first one. And I think she was pretty excited about it. And uh, and she was also uh, a classmate of yours in high school, wasn't she? She was. That was kind of how I was able to... I mean, we had already... I think we'd already seen each other at one class reunion. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We were connecting at this moment of our life. You know? uh-huh. um, tell us about David Gilbert and how he's doing. He's still in prison. David Gilbert and I had Chase as our son. And we are like a long-term life partners. So I speak with him every couple of weeks. And I speak with him about two times a week, I would say, at this point. And he's done... 39 years in prison, and it's really hard to believe. Uh, I did 22 years. I mean, it, it, 39 years, it's like the strength, the inner strength that it takes to do that and be, remain uh, funny, mm-hmm. serious, principled, alive, mm-hmm. and all of those things are who David is. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy. No, it's not. And of course, in this time of COVID-19, it gives all of us a lot more. Very anxiety. scary. Yeah. Prison situation has been absolutely terrible. Uh, I can speak for New York, certainly, where the governor has really not wanted to deal with letting people out of prison. And he certainly doesn't want to let people out of prison who are there for uh, a crime in which people died. Right. So we have been working very hard uh, to try to get him out. I'm also part of an organization called RAP, Release Aging People in Prison whose main focus has been in this last period to push the governor to please let the people that are the most vulnerable and the least likely to ever come back, who are the older people. And they're the leaders, the mentors, and they're the most fragile. So we've been working hard. I think that David has remained, uh, you'd have to say a very, a person who believes in being very principled. Mm Mm-hmm about the need for justice around the world mm-hmm. and equality around the world. Mm-hmm. And that belief has also been a tremendous strength that's helped him feel like, yes, I did what I did. I can have regrets about it, but I know that what drove me mm-hmm. was to believe in a better world and want to be part of making that happen. Of course, David is a dear friend of mine. And uh, somehow David and you and Bernadine and I found a way to co-parent an extraordinary kid, Chase Boudin, who has been on the sh- uh, under the tree with me. And uh, as everyone knows, is now the district attorney of San Francisco. That was a complicated uh, dance of the dialectic, figuring out how to, how to co-parent. How did we do it? I mean, you talked about the fact that you did a lot of work with other mothers in prison, trying to help them see how parenting from prison could be a possibility, even though a very difficult, difficult climb. Um, I mean, we had the advantage of being comrades and friends, um, which a lot of folks don't have that, that going for them. We also had the advantage of, of having resources so that phone calls could happen and so on. But, but I'd just be interested in, in you commenting on that, both, both the, the tragedy and also the joy of, of what we were able to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that you and, Bill, you and Bernadine and, and you know, Zayd and Malik. Who are, who are our other children. Children, yeah. I think that you were an incredible family. And so I think we were very lucky that you, I'm going to start to cry, but I think that you were very we were very lucky that you stepped forward and said, we'll bring him into our family. And I think the thing that's hard for any of us that were in prison, at least it's one of the things that we talked a lot about as, as mothers in prison was, was giving up a certain role as a mother to other people that were going to be that role. And so when you said, well, you helped other mothers, I think you have to understand when I first got to prison, I joined a support group that Mm -hmm. I was part of with somebody else facilitating and we could talk about those feelings Mm. and I think that that was one of the most difficult issues for me and when I I used to hear you say well you know Chase is we adopted him into our family I went wait you didn't adopt him he we're we're still his parents you know and it was like slowly grappling with the notion that it was critical that he feel absolutely part of your family Mm -hmm. but that was a very hard thing for us to do and I think that uh 
you know, you, you have to get some professional help that can assure you that it's the best thing for him, that he'd be really part of that family. And that he stays really part of your other, of this family, of David and me, and that it's to the advantage of him that we are all together. But it's not easy to do it. And I think that, you know, I think I said the first time I came to Chicago after I got out of prison, uh, and I realized how much of Chase's life, I didn't have a relationship to it. Because when you're in prison, you think so much about yourself. <laughs> and your world becomes yourself. And I, I remember when I first, I would get these cards that Chase would send from family land in Northern California. And I would just say, I wish he'd hurry up and come back. Mm. You know? And then I went out to the land and I was like, oh, my God, this was a life that he was leading. And all I'm thinking of is I'm missing him. Why doesn't he come back? Right. And so I think that there's a process of having to mature about figuring out what your role is in this new family situation. And he so, played a great role in that because he wanted to be connected to all of us. And that helped. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, and it's interesting because perhaps it happened in extreme but all parents have to learn the art of holding on and the art of letting go. Yeah. All parents, and uh, so in a, in, a, in a sense, you um, you had to deal with it in a very harsh circumstance, but you did it. And I think one of the tributes is that you know I, I just tell one story, which you know, which is when Chesa got married, you did a brilliant thing, which you you brought a life size cutout of David Gilbert to the wedding. And every photo of me is also a photo of David. And you and Bernadine walked Chesa down the aisle, but David and I were standing right there. And I don't think most people, when you go to prison, the, the, the experience of being buried alive becomes a very much a part of it. David was not buried alive and neither were you. And I think it's a tribute to, to everybody, but certainly to Chesa, that he's able to somehow comes to terms with the fact that he has four parents and he loves them all and he cares about them all and he accepts love from them all. Um, and we'll have to get on the phone later and talk about what we're getting for his 40th birthday. I mean, Bernie, <laughs> one thing that we're getting. <laughs> okay. So, so did you ever say to yourself, I'm a revolutionary? Oh, always. And you're still a revolutionary. Well, I do, because what happens is now everybody wants to say they're an abolitionist. And I'm like, I'd rather say I'm a revolutionary. Abolition is too narrow. Uh I see. So you want a change in the system. No, change the system, of course. And you can't have abolition without the change really deep in the system. So I say that to a lot of the younger people that I spend time with. You want to fight over whether what abolition means? I'm, I'm a revolutionary. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> Kathy, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your spending so much time with me. And as you know, I love you very much. And thanks, for, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. I love your podcast. I want to return to a segment of the podcast we've called our Book of Books, or our Bob what I'm reading, and what I think I need to read to become a more fully developed and educated human being. It's an opportunity to share titles and essential readings with one another, and to develop an annotated reading autobiography projected into the near future. It ought to reflect your best thinking on a distinct personal, professional, political journey, as well as your idiosyncratic, intellectual, and ethical passage. Today, I want to alert you to a book I'm reading and point you to a set of books suggested by that book around a vital and useful theme. The book I'm reading is by the novelist John Berger, and it's called From A to X. It's letters that he imagines to a prisoner who's locked up for political activity in some unnamed country, some unnamed era. But he's locked up, and his lover is writing to him. Her name is Aida. His name is Xavier. So it's from A to X, and it's a very moving and inspirational set of letters about the mundane of our lives, but also about our vivid imaginations of what could be and what should be. Reading this book by John Berger, I began to remember other books that I've read, 
which are basically letters from prison. Not all of them, but mostly letters from prison, or they have a large chunk of prison letters. As I think you know, I have been in correspondence with many prisoners over many decades, and certainly my family members, Kathy Boudin and David Gilbert, have been regular correspondents. So I know something about prison letters, um, the importance of them as lifelines, but also the necessary minutiae of life, the ways in which we share the dailiness of our existence. So John Berger from A to X, the autobiography of Malcolm X I put on that list, one of the great books from the 70s, George Jackson's Soledad Brother. You may remember that George Jackson was murdered uh, at San Quentin Prison by prison guards. Antonio Gramsci's classic, The Prison Notebooks, um, from Italy in the... Um, around the era of World War II, before when fascism had taken over Italy. And he was the leader of the Communist Party of Italy and wrote an astonishing number of uh, letters, notebooks um, about his thinking and includes cultural criticism. Nelson Mandela's classic prison letters. Martin Luther King, A Testament of Hope, which includes Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And two books by the great Rosa Luxemburg that I consult regularly. One is called The Letters of Rosa Luxemburg, and one is to her longtime partner, and it's simply called Comrade and Lover. I suggest all of those books uh, to be added to your book of books as you look more deeply into the reality of what we've become, which is a prison nation or a carceral state. Look at the letters from prison. I have one last piece for you today, which is a homework assignment. And it's really just to continue with the free write. And I'll repeat it here and take it to a deeper place in the days ahead. Write a note to someone in prison. Again, that person might be factual or imagined, and the prison might be real or metaphoric. And picture yourself moving in and out of windows, offering a vision of freedom. Thanks to friends and comrades from the brilliant podcast Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, producers and mentors, and to Malika Leem, valued and irreplaceable comrade in arms. Our music is by Tom, the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.